We're going to be returning to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12 this morning. 1 Peter 4 and verse Well, as we continue in the book of 1 Peter, you know that suffering and persecution is a theme throughout it, and it's good to be reminded of our brothers and sisters around the world who suffer in ways beyond just verbal insults and the such, but uh, they are assaulted on their very persons, you know, beaten, tortured, imprisoned, and to hear that, you know, the, the number one request that they have from us is that we pray for them. And in faith, we do so. Uh, we make our request and appeal known to the King of Kings who knows how to care for all of his children, and he faithfully does so. When we think about First Peter, it's important to understand the context and which all of this letter was given and the things that were going on and the place that these people were in one background commentary on first Peter we find these words in the first decades of the church's existence it quickly became clear that the church differed from the surrounding culture and that the culture did not like it whether this culture was Jewish or Greco-Roman, this displeasure was expressed in a number of ways. So here's a list of some things that we get just from the book of Acts. Commands and threats, physical punishment, fines and confiscation of goods, imprisonment, mob violence and lynching and judicial execution. And along with these came public shaming and insults, which is what Peter is focused on as part of the suffering of these people. Uh, public shaming and insults, and even economic discrimination, which is part of the background to the book of James. Christians did not fit in, and the surrounding culture was prepared to use all of the means at its disposal to force them to return to cultural conformity. Well, how did these early Christians respond to such suffering? Christians responded to this treatment with patient endurance, with explanations, both informal and in court situations, of their real beliefs and practices, with flight to other cities, and with communal support for those who were suffering. In doing this, they modeled their response on the teaching of Jesus to flee to the next city and also living by the example of Jesus and how they responded. In reading about the historical context of uh, those who received Peter's letter, it sounds very much like our context. The, the same kinds of sufferings have continued. I want you to note that as we read 1 Peter 4, 
12 through 19 together. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Our Heavenly Father, these are your words and we are your people. I pray that you would give me clarity of mind to speak your clear word and that I would speak your word and your thoughts to your people, that you would sanctify us, that your word would be preached with conviction, with liberty, that you would in some way animate your heart for your people through myself, teach us and feed us. You are the good shepherd and we look to you. Amen. We should not be surprised when we suffer similarly to the early church. We're part of the same church. We have the same Lord and we need the same instruction on how to respond to suffering. In 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, God gives us four responses to suffering so that we will entrust ourselves to him amidst suffering. There's no reason to be surprised by suffering when you know how to respond to it. So how does God's word teach us to respond to suffering? Well, we're going to consider it in four words that start with E, four responses to suffering in this text. The first is expect. The second, exult. It's exult with a U. It's a synonym for rejoice. The third is evaluate. And the fourth is entrust. Expect, exult, evaluate, and entrust. Let's consider our first response to suffering, which is to expect suffering. We see this in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something, something strange were happening to you. Note how Peter starts with the word beloved. And what a wonderful reminder that is for suffering saints. It's easy as sojourners and exiles in this world to feel neglected, to feel like God doesn't care and we've just been left to ourselves when things become difficult. But Peter's reminding these people that they're the beloved of God. God is active. God loves you. God cares. And so he reads to these dear saints their name tag, beloved. And as laid out in the beginning of 1 Peter, he reminds these elect exiles that the whole trinity 
is active and involved in your salvation right now. The Father foreknew you. The Spirit set you apart for obedience to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ accomplished the redemption that the Spirit has applied to you through the new birth. Peter goes on to say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. He says, don't, don't think, I can't process this. I, I don't understand what's happening. This is so strange that people are treating us like this. The fiery trial which Peter is referring to here is being insulted for the name of Christ. Some relate the fiery trial here in 1 Peter to Emperor Nero burning Christians in Rome. But these believers aren't in Rome. They are in Asia Minor. And this letter predates the persecution that happened in Rome. Peter isn't focused on a future fiery trial as much as he's focused on a present fiery trial of fiery words directed at them. Nobody dies for their faith in 1 Peter, but people do get insulted for their faith. His focus is on insult, not assault. You see this in verse 14 where he says, if you are insulted. And he has already explained in 4.4 why unbelievers insult you. It says in 4.4, because they are surprised when you do not join them in their flood of living for their own pleasure. And they want to make you fearful of their disfavor so that you'll stop referring to their city as the city of destruction and join them in Vanity Fair with all of its distracting entertainment and comforts so long as you love what they love and hate what they hate. But these idols that they offer you will put you at odds with your God because they call love hate and hate love good evil and evil good. But we are not surprised by verbal suffering being mocked and scoffed at because we know that our good conduct confronts their evil conduct. Light confronts what's in the dark. Think about it. Believing, just the fact that we believe that human beings are made in the image of God, even in the womb, confronts the evil of the pharaohs and the herods of the world who want to abort image bearers. Or believing that being made in the image of God includes the equal worth of male and female with distinct roles confronts the egalitarian lie that women would have more worth if they could just do the role of a man. Or believing that as image bearers, that gender distinctions are intrinsic and immutable confronts the lie that you can imagine yourself to be whatever you want to be. Or believing that marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman confronts that any deviation from God's definition of marriage is a sin against the creator of the universe. Or believing that men are made in the image of God as individuals who are accountable to God's law alone confronts the lie that we're not individuals but a collective who is to bow down to Caesar as God and pastor and parent. Believing that men display the image of God by having dominion over the land rather than the land having dominion over us confronts the lies of environmentalism and the need to abolish private property. Just the fact that you want to go to work and you do go to work to earn a living so that you can bless others with the fruit of your labors is offensive to a world that wants everything 
handed to them without that labor as God has designed it. Protestant work ethic is an offense to a world who are children of the father of lies, who hates the image of God being displayed in creation. So they join him in his mission to steal, kill, and destroy. But say and do what they will, I join Puritan Richard Sibbs in saying, better to be in trouble with Christ than in peace without him. The mere existence of Christians who believe God's word and seek to live by it confronts the sinfulness of the world. Thanking Christ results in their insults. Desiring to live godly in this life results in their insults. You don't even have to say anything to get them to say something. You just have to thank Christ. Because light is easily seen without any sound. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. The mere presence of Christian worldview on the planet causes a darkened conscience to try to silence the thing that's setting it off. They want their sin to be approved and celebrated, as it says in Romans 1. And Christians get in the way of that. And so they bring suffering to Christians through insult. The fiery trial of these insults that we receive from the world is fiery because it tests you. It purifies you. Peter's already written about this in 1.7. So that, he says that these trials are so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your faith, Christian, is so precious to God that he purifies it through fiery trials, much the way a goldsmith purifies his precious gold through fiery trials to remove every speck of dross until the goldsmith can perfectly see his reflection in his precious possession. God uses suffering through fiery trials to show us that our faith is real, that he also to show us that it's precious enough for him to purify it and only make it greater. And when he's done with his purifying work in your life and he can perfectly see his reflection in your life, I imagine that perhaps the angel chorus who sang at the beginning of creation when God makes us into a new creation, perhaps they'll sing a chorus of, and God saw that it was good. It's not a strange thing to suffer like Jesus when you desire to live like Jesus. We live in a Romans 1 world with a Romans 1 message. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them, as it is written in Romans 1.32. As the church, we are the pillar of truth who destroys lies and we do that so that lies won't destroy our neighbor. As it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's not a strange thing that the world would insult us because we testify as Jesus did that their deeds are evil. 
And in hearing these things, they respond by bringing suffering or persecution. And they mean persecution for evil, but God means it for good. It's not a strange thing to be tested like him that you might become more like him. As you know from passages like Luke 4, Matthew 4, that Jesus endured similar temptation, but he came out victorious, that he would be our victory and also our example. We will be holy as he is holy, little by little in this life until the day that we were made like him whom we were made to image. We are not surprised by suffering or think it's strange when we've been trained by God's word. Have you ever got a new pet before that was skittish at every new sound and thing until you trained it to trust the master? It's okay. Being trained by the master helps us not to jump at every rustle of the cultural leaf pile that will blow away in time. We keep our eyes on the master. If he says it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. We are not surprised by suffering because we expect suffering. It was promised to us. Expecting suffering may not make it less painful, but it'll be less difficult because you'll be thinking about it correctly. And also we're reminded that it's something that we don't go through alone. We have faith in the God who is with us. Faith in the God who fights for us. Faith in the God who converts evil into good. Listen to how Peter's disciple or Jesus himself uses the same logic of expecting suffering and rejoicing at the blessing of the reward that follows it in Luke 6. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Well, the first response that we're to have to suffering is to expect it. The second response that we'll consider is to exult amidst suffering. Exult amidst suffering. And we see this in verses 13 and 14. But rejoice or exult insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. Well, what, what sufferings do we share in with Christ? Well, here I want to remind you, Peter's focus is on verbal suffering. Going back to chapter 2 and verse 23, he says of Christ, he was reviled. And in 3.16, he picks up on how we share in being reviled or slandered just as Christ was reviled and slandered. But verbal suffering, as this text teaches, will give way to verbal praise because of the blessing of the presence of the one with whom we share that suffering. The blessing that Peter has in mind is not suffering itself, but it's the blessing of the presence of God. He makes this point by connecting to Isaiah 11:2 
which reads, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You know that this verse ties not only to Jesus' baptism, but also your baptism into Jesus. You rejoice because the same spirit that rested on Jesus at his baptism before his suffering rests on you. God knows that we need a spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord when trials come upon us. And he's pleased to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for that good gift. We don't rejoice in suffering itself. What we rejoice in is the presence of Emmanuel. We rejoice in God with us. God with us in our suffering. God with us in exile. We rejoice because what is written in the part of Isaiah, which some call the book of Emmanuel. You'll remember these words from Isaiah 9:6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Time, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. When we read such words, it evokes a hallelujah chorus, which will be sung for all of eternity. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? Hallelujah, because the light of the world has come into the world to break the darkness. Hallelujah, he has come into our exile to end exile. Hallelujah, a greater exodus, a final exodus is coming. Hallelujah, he is Lord over all and every knee will bow to him. As theologian politician Abraham Kuyper put it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He is Lord over creation. Even the wind and the waves obey him. He is Lord over the times and the seasons. He is Lord of lords and king of kings. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He is Lord over religion, politics, science, medicine, art, economy, agriculture, the future, everything. Everything is subject to the lordship of Jesus Christ. As it says in Hebrews 2, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Hallelujah! The last enemy to be defeated is death, and defeated it will be. Jesus Christ is Lord over the past, the present, and the future of everything. We will receive the fullness of our salvation and it will be glorious. Hallelujah, God is with us. We rejoice because of our union with Christ. We have been united with him in his death and in his resurrection. We celebrate that when we partake of the Lord's Supper together or when we observe a baptism together. 
We are united with him in his suffering. We will be united with him in his glory. And if we're united with him in his suffering, how much more will we be united with him in his glory? Our suffering reminds us of who we belong to. It also reminds us that suffering is not a threat. It's a promise of fellowship with Jesus. And our fellowship of suffering with him will give way to a fellowship of glory with him. And we must not forget also that our union with Christ means that we are in union with his body, with one another, with these believers that are here with us, surrounding us even now. We suffer in fellowship with the head of the church and the body of the church. And as we suffer to the world, it looks like we're on the losing team. But if men rejoice over an underdog team winning at the last moments of a game, how much more will the saints rejoice when Jesus comes and settles the score? Hallelujah for the rule and reign of Jesus Christ to be revealed. His glory will be revealed. Jesus will be revealed. Your reward will be revealed. And Jesus is that reward. And when he establishes his city to come, there will be no more night, only light. For the glory of God will give that city its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That comes from Revelation 21. Expecting suffering helps us to exult in suffering because we know who we belong to, because we know how the story ends. But another response that we need to consider in suffering this is our third response that we'll consider is to evaluate your response to suffering. Evaluate your response to suffering. We see this chapter 4, verses 15 to 18. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? As Christians, we expect suffering. We exult in suffering and we evaluate our response to suffering because we're to suffer as Christians, not as criminals. You will suffer in this world, but don't suffer because justice is rightly being served to you. Don't suffer as a murderer. Don't suffer as a revolutionary like the zealots of Peter's day who tried to overthrow Rome, but rather suffer the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Don't suffer because you tried to control life by taking a life which you had no right to do. Don't suffer as a thief. 
don't suffer for robbing your neighbor of what you think is communist propaganda yard signs. Who did that? Don't suffer for robbing a store because you come under economic persecution. You can trust God for the hospitality of his people. Don't suffer as an evildoer. Don't, don't suffer for anything that God calls evil. Don't suffer for gaslighting people on the internet because they don't see things the way that you do. Evaluate how you're responding to the verbal threats of the world. Don't suffer as a meddler. Spurgeon has some good words on not suffering as a meddler here. He says, there are some who seem as if they cannot mind their own business. I have heard that it is for two reasons. First, because they have not any business to mind. And secondly, they have no mind at all with which to mind their business. <laughs> but these very people think they can mind other people's business. And the more is the pity. Don't suffer because you try to involve yourself in some matter where God is not providentially placed you to deal with. And don't try to excuse your misplaced fear and desire to control things by relabeling your meddling as research. Isaiah confronted people in his day of such a thing in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. And you think about their misplaced fear then. It says in Isaiah 8, 19, And when they say to you, inquire of the internet and the cell phones who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? You can go back and read that verse to see what I did with it. Isaiah 8, 19. It is not your job to overturn the culture. Jesus can do that by himself when he has planned to do it. You belong to Christ and your aim is to be faithful to him. Be about living where God has placed you in the position he has placed you. Don't get distracted with civilian affairs. Run the race that God has called you to run in the lane that he's placed you to run in. I had a brother remind me recently of a farm boy who spent the whole day harvesting a field and he proudly came to his father and said, Dad, look, I harvested the whole field today. And his father, indignant, said, Son, you harvested the wrong field. That's not what I told you to do. Christian, harvest the right field. Don't suffer as a criminal. Suffer as a Christian. Now this word Christian doesn't appear in Scripture often. Usually Christians are more commonly referred to in Scripture as those who are in Christ or belong to him or belong to us. This use of Christian in 1 Peter is the third and last time that the word Christian appears in Scripture. The other two are in the book of Acts, which is when historically the, the word was used as a derogatory term to insult Christians by calling them little Christs. But God loves to turn cursing into blessing, and so the name was converted into an honorable term. Yes, we are little Christ, and that's exactly what we want the world to see in us, Christ. In the honor and shame culture of Peter's day, men meant the word Christian for shame, but God meant the word for honor. 
The world laughed at people who were called Christians, but the joke was on them. What an honor to be recognized as someone who follows Jesus Christ, even as just a little Christ, someone to, who some degree reflects what Christ is like to the world. There is no shame in being recognized as a Christian in the world. Praise God that they see Christ in you, even amidst all sorts of public accusations and being excluded and shamed. Praise God that they can see Christ in us. God is glorified when we suffer for the name of Christ while displaying the character of Christ. God purifies us through suffering as a Christian. And he also reminds the world of the punishment that they deserve for sinning against him. As it says in verse 17, for it is time for a judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, when it's time to clean your house, you don't go sweep Main Street. Similarly, God cleans his whole house before he cleans the whole world. You think about John the Baptist testifying this truth when he preached, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Think about how God cleaned the house when the father of lies filled the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira to lie to the Holy Spirit. And their death resulted in a purifying holy fear coming upon the whole church. Think about the Corinthians who profaned the Lord's table and some were weak and sick and a number had died by God's hand of judgment in 1 Corinthians 11. Think about how God graciously implemented church discipline as the first instruction that he gave to the church in Matthew 18 before the church ever existed. And he did this for her protection and for her holiness. When God judges, disciplines the church, he purges out the hypocrites. He purges out the false professors. He purges out the self-interested shepherds. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Saints, let's be thinking about how we're living and let's be helping each other to grow in holiness. Nobody here should feel secure in a sinful lifestyle. Nobody should be secure continuing in sin without any fear or dread of the Almighty here. Now, in speaking of judgment in this passage, maybe you've picked up that there's two kinds of judgment that Peter is referring to. There is judgment as discipline for those who are part of the household of God, and there is judgment as punishment for those outside the household. The two kinds of judgment are of discipline and of punishment. Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 12 is a clear passage on judgment as discipline for those as part of the household of God. You may remember verse 7 where the author writes, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. God loves you enough 
to not let you just run wild in the world to your own harm. He disciplines you as a son and he guides you down a better path. But now considering the other kind of judgment, judgment is punishment for those who do not obey the gospel of God, Peter reinforces this point by quoting Proverbs 11.31. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more will the wicked and the sinner? In a way, what is being said there is crime doesn't pay, it gets repaid. If believers can't escape divine discipline in this life, what makes you think that sinners will escape divine punishment in the next? This reminds us of the parable that Jesus told of the rich man in Lazarus where Abraham in the parable said to the rich man in hell, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus and like man are bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. The meek are disciplined on earth which they will be blessed to inherit. The proud are punished in hell because though they enjoyed many good gifts, they never honored or thanked the giver. They never had any desire to be with the giver anyways, and they will receive the desire of their heart. A couple of verses that are notable on this topic are Proverbs 3, 11, and 1 Corinthians 11. I'll read those to you. Proverbs 3, 11 reads, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. In 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-two, it is written, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The reason that God disciplines us is so that he might be Lord of everything in our lives. I hope that you won't mind if he does a little idol smashing in your life from time to time because he wants to give you something better himself. This text is a reminder to establish our priorities in life with eternity and judgment in view. You'll recall that 1 Peter is a book about hope and holiness. Our priorities as we look forward to eternity and judgment is to pursue holy living today and to set your sight on your living hope, Jesus Christ, today. To behold him and to become like him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are the people of a living hope with holy living. Living hope with holy living. Also, it's good to be reminded to not let the fear of the world silence us from lovingly warning of the wrath to come. I remember speaking to a gentleman a while back who was upset at the violent protest going on and the deception and the lies and the stealing. And I said to him, you know what's gonna happen to those people? They're going to die and God's gonna judge them. 
And you know what's going to happen to you? The same thing. You're going to die, and God's going to judge you for how you lived the life that he gave to you. And there was a long pause. And he said, you know, I hadn't quite thought about it like that. Part of the church's prophetic voice is to sound forth the message of the prophets. I think of Isaiah here in Isaiah 3.12 where he said, My people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. Commenting on this verse recently, I heard John MacArthur say, who's your vice president? It's a woman. Who's your president? Somebody with the mental capacity of a child. He said, that's the judgment of God. We sound forth both temporal and eternal judgment. As we know, that God's judgment has effects in this life and the next. I think of the prophet John the Baptist who said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her as your wife. Or in thinking of eternal judgment, Jesus who said, repent lest you likewise perish. In suffering, we need to not only evaluate our own life, but also evaluate what will happen to the ungodly. The way that we as Christians are to respond to suffering as we're learning from this text is to expect suffering, to exult amidst suffering, and to evaluate our response to it. And fourthly, to entrust yourself to the creator. Our fourth response in suffering is to entrust yourself to the creator. We see this in verse 19 which reads, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This response here encapsulates all of the others. If you entrust yourself to the sovereign creator of all things, you will expect the suffering that he promised. You'll exult and rejoice amidst the light momentary affliction that it is. And you'll evaluate your own need to grow in holiness, that you might be a witness of the hope that is in you to a whole world that's going to be purified by fire. Our suffering is according to God's sovereign will. And because he is sovereign, we can entrust our whole being to him because we know who he is. He is the faithful creator. You can entrust yourself to him because he is the bridegroom of the church. Remember when Saul was confronted by Jesus in Acts 9 for persecuting Jesus by harming his bride. And in a way, Jesus said, Saul, you touch my bride, you touch me. I'm the one with whom you have to do. By grace, Saul's ignorance became knowledge of the only Savior and Lord to whom his knee was made to bow in that moment. Jesus knows how to take care of his bride. And also, as you know, in any marriage, you share in the happy things as well as the hard things. 
you have a covenant keeper you know you can trust to be with you until the very end. And knowing that somebody is committed to you makes the hard things not so hard in the end. You can rest your head on the broad-shouldered Jesus. Also, as you know, Scripture teaches, we are God's house. We can trust the head of the house to protect what is his. As Richard Sibbs writes, are God's people his house? Then let the enemies of the church take heed how they deal with them. For God will have a special care of his own house. Howsoever he may seem for a time to neglect his children, yet remember this, they are his house still, and no ordinary house, but a temple wherein sacrifice is offered to him continually. And he that destroys the temple of God, him will God destroy. In looking at this verse, you see the word creator there. It's the only place in the New Testament where you see God called the creator. It's an assumed truth which stands on the foundation of the first testament. It's a reminder of who your faith is in. Your faith is in the creator. You remember how God comforted Israel with reminding them of his spectacular control of everything through the prophet Isaiah when he said this in Isaiah 45. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Christian, your faith is in the faithful creator. There is no other. He is faithful and cannot deny his character. Unfaithfulness is not a possibility with God, ever. His faithfulness is one of his most often repeated perfections in scripture. And faith is taught to be the number one value of his people. All the way from Father Abraham to his many sons, our number one value in life is faith. Faith in the God who is with us, who fights for us, and who converts evil into good. Our faith is in the faithful creator. And this is a faith that goes from head to feet. We believe it and we walk in it. Like Abraham, by faith, we believe the promises of God and we leave one city looking forward to the city that has foundations, 
whose designer and builder is God. We trust our faithful creator while doing good. As we come to a close on this message, the late Puritan pastor John Flavel sums it up well in this paragraph, which I would like to read to you. You have no reason to scare at the terms and conditions propounded to you by Christ. They are equal, necessary, and easy. Come unto me, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. His commands are not grievous. All his ways are pleasantness, and all his paths are peace. The joy of the Lord shall be your strength. If there be repenting work, believing work, sin-mortifying work, or suffering work for you, there is also a suitable provision of divine assistance to enable and carry you through it all. My grace is sufficient for you. If men cast you out, God will receive you. If any sharp trial befall you, there is a door of escape prepared for your outlet. If you meet with trouble in the world, you shall not fail of peace in Christ. If you lose any outward enjoyment for Christ's sake, it shall be recompensed an hundredfold in this world besides the reward of heaven hereafter. If you be cast into prison for Christ, the comforter shall come from heaven and rest upon you there. If you suffer with him, you shall reign with him. As we've learned from this text and this message, the way that we respond to suffering is to expect suffering, to exult amidst suffering, to evaluate our response to suffering, and to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator with whom we celebrate our union with him and one another through his death and resurrection, even as we observe the Lord's Supper here together today. So at this moment, I'd like to ask the deacons to come forward as we pray and prepare for them to serve us the elements with which we will worship Christ for our union with him. Jesus, we praise you that we share in not only your suffering, but the salvation to come. It is a salvation that you accomplished on the cross. It is a salvation that is being worked out in our lives now and us growing in holiness today. It is a salvation that will be realized in joy for all of eternity when we are resurrected with a body like yours. May we remember and celebrate meditate on these great truths as we partake of your memorial mill in remembering your death and resurrection and proclaim your coming, your coming. Amen.